You are listening to the Calvary Church Podcast, where each episode features a life-transforming message that was previously recorded in one of our services. And now, let's join a service that's already in progress. We're going to continue our series tonight. We're going to continue and conclude our series tonight on the book of Revelation. Again, we're taking a really brief look at this book, just kind of diving into the framework of how the book was set up and and, uh, context. Tonight is going to be in three phases, all right? I'll give you that up front. There's going to be, I'm going to teach for a period of time, probably brief, and it's going to be really fast, all right? Then there's going to be a time, our app time is actually going to be in the middle of our session today, and uh, it's a an evaluation of sorts. I'll give you that hint about app time. It's a, it's a private app time. All right, so some of you breathe a sigh of relief about that. All right, and then we're going to conclude with the last segment, which is um, going to be uh, a separate segment, and, and I'll explain that in a moment. So diving right into the book of Revelation, we talked about this last week. Uh, that, that it is sometimes viewed as one of the scariest books of the Bible, not just because of its imagery, but its interpretation. How do you interpret the book of Revelation? It certainly gives great challenges. Uh, it gives us a great challenge when we read it uh, because of the imagery, the symbolism, and those kind of things. And so uh, we are hoping in this brief, very brief series, a series on the book of Revelation that could really, you could take a year and really dive into it. But we're, we're just looking at just the framework of the book of Revelation. But uh, I want to recommend a couple resources to you. One uh, is the Handbook on the General Epistles and Revelation. This is a book that the United Pentecostal Church uh, put out several years ago, written by Jeffrey Brickle and Jeremy Painter. This is a great overview, just a handbook of the book of Revelation. And then this book is The Life, Death, and End of the World. That's exciting, right? Life, Death, and the End of the World by Dr. Dave Norris, who is a uh, professor of biblical theology at Urshan Graduate School of Theology. But uh, this is a, also a, a great book if you want to dive further into the book of Revelation. And I'll have these uh, for you to uh, look at. And if you want, want that, I can text you that information. But we looked at last week several different elements. Number one, the writer, John, who uh, I... I believe it was John, the son of Zebedee. There are different views even on that. Uh, The genre being the apocalyptic, the prophetic, and the epistolary uh, view uh, or genre. Those three genres make up the book of Revelation, whereas a lot of or several of the genres in the New Testament are one particular genre, uh, such as an epistle or uh, uh, history. Uh, the book of Revelation has kind of three different uh, genres to it, and we talked about those last week. There's different ways to interpret it. Uh, there's the preterist theory, the historical theory, the symbolic theory, and the futurist theory. Again, we covered that, and then you get into the whole uh, how do you view tribulation, post-tribulation, mid-tribulation, pre-tribulation, 
Do you pray before you eat your appetizer, mid-appetizer, or after you eat your appetizer? There's all those ways you can look at it. But it's easy to get tangled up in the book of Revelation, and it's easy to fall down rabbit holes in the book of Revelation when you start reading it and when you start studying it. And uh, I, I think it's, it's great if you have a desire to understand it more and you want to dive into different theories about it. I certainly don't uh, have any, I don't have any issue with that or take exception to that. I think it's a book that's worthy of further investigation looking at it in different views. But if I were to have somebody come, if I were to have four, I could name four preachers that you respect and admire come up and teach the book of Revelation, they're all going to teach it differently. And uh, so I understand that when we look at the book of Revelation, it has different perspectives that it can be viewed in. One thing that, again, I mentioned last week, I'll say it again, Acts 1-7, when Jesus was asked when the end of the times was going to be, he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but you shall receive, or but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. And uh, regardless of how deep you get into the book of Revelation, that's great. Understand that at the end of the end of the day, God has the power of the end of times. And it's in his uh, decision-making that he determines those times. What we need to know is that he has equipped us for any time that we live in. Regardless of where we are in the landscape of the book of Revelation, what we understand is that we are equipped for this time. We look at the political landscape of the United States of America, and it's crazy, and all the stuff that's happening, but I, I, I remind us who have been in church, wow, it's always been crazy. It's always been a, a mess, regardless of what you know, generation you grew up in. What I feel confident in and what I feel most secure in is that Jesus Christ wanted me in this generation. That means I'm equipped to live in this generation regardless of what culture pushes on me, what kind of persecution we go through, what kind of pressure we go through. I've been called to this generation, and I can be confident of that. So we looked at the, the different parts of the book of Revelation. Again, won't spend a lot of time on that, but using Revelation 1 verse 19 as kind of how we're breaking it up, Revelation 1:19, he says, "Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this." And so we are kind of looking at the book of Revelation in those three phases. We specifically looked at the prologue and part or the intro to the things which are, and we're going to finish that tonight and then just quickly look through the things that will take place after these things. Now, I'm going to skip now if we look at the, uh, you can look at the prologue, Revelation 1.1, and uh, goes into the greeting in Revelation 1 verse 4, and uh, to John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, so we immediately pick up on the idea that he's writing to seven churches. Let me point out verse number six says he's made us kings and priests to his God and Father that we are called to be something in this world. We're called to live 
a life that pleases the Lord. We are kings and priests in this world. Verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. Remember, the book of Revelation, the Apocalypsis, The word apocalypse does not mean scary end of times. It means to unveil, to make known. And what is it? It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when you're reading the book of Revelation, you're reading about Jesus Christ. It's revealing ultimately who Christ is and what he came to be. So he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is who was and who is to come. All right, now, all right, we're going to keep moving fast. And let's talk about quickly the letters. So you've got the prologue, you've got this introduction, and then uh, the next couple chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3, really are letters or statements to churches. They're, They're very specific, and John is writing to these churches specifically about things that are going on right then and there. Now, we talked about them being letters, and they, they have a consistent flow to them. Number one, John is going to write uh, to that congregation, so he's going to commission the congregation. He's going to give some element of Christ's nature in, again, the prologue. He's going to pull from that to describe Christ in some way. Then he's going to give an evaluation of the church, whether it's a strength or a weakness or both. And then he's going to help the church understand how they need to address it. And then he's going to call them to hear what the Spirit is saying and call them to live victorious, to overcome. So it's pretty consistent as you read through these letters. And, and so these letters serve sort of as a bridge to what is to come. You're going to hear some language that you'll hear later, and you'll hear some language that you heard in the prologue as well. Now, again, as I mentioned last week, these letters were circulated So one church is going to get this book of Revelation. They're going to see all the issues with the other churches. Then they're going to copy that down. They're going to send that on. They're going to move that letter to the next group. They're going to get to see all the issues with all the churches, and then it's going to move that way. And so isn't that wonderful? Wouldn't you love that about your life if if we sent out a letter to everybody in the church that, that... was everybody's issues in the church. Maybe you would feel better about yourself. I don't know. All right. Maybe we could do that. Sister Reed, write that down. We'll do that. We'll just send out everybody's issues to the whole church, and we'll just pray for one another. All right. So in what we start with, let's look at the book uh, uh, of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 1. And I'm telling you, I'm flying. I'm flying as fast as I can. So get your Bibles. We're going really fast. The church in Ephesus, this was the church. Again, I, I mentioned it last week. This is John, John, John's church. This is where he was, and he gets picked on first. 
All right, so uh, it's to the, the church at Ephesus, but let me, let me just pull out a few things that you'll see over and over, and then I'll, I'll speed it up. But he, he begins with the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? These things says, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He's pulling this from the prologue. He's pulling this from the introduction, Remember, he gives him the mystery of the seven golden uh, lampstands and the, the stars that were in his right hand. So he's introducing Jesus Christ. And then he says this, and you're going to see this every time. I'm not going to read it every time. But he said, I know your works. He says that to every church. I know your works. And I think that's important for us to understand that God is watching us. God is paying attention to what we're doing. And he talks about their labor, their patience. And verse uh, uh, number three of chapter two, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored. Verse number four, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. All right? So he's, he's bringing forth something, one of their weaknesses, that somehow they've, they've left what they used to love to do, and we're not going to take the time to dive into that, but you see him pulling out something that they need to pay attention to. They had left their first love, and, and he talks about the Nicolaitans, and, and then verse 7, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. All right, so this same pattern is going to be repeated. So the church in Ephesus resisted evil. They had patience in difficult times, but they had left their first love. And he encourages them to overcome. Everyone say overcome. Then the church in Smyrna. So he says, he introduces an aspect of Jesus Christ. These things in verse 8, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Verse 9, I know your works. I know your tribulation, your poverty. I know what you've been through. Uh, and and he, he really emphasizes the tribulation that they've walked in and, and even their physical need that they, they had. And he, he encourages them that to, to not be overcome by the blasphemers in the church. But he says, he who overcome, verse 11, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So he's, he's encouraging them. Verse, or, or verse 12, we're going to look at Pergamos. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Again, this is Christ. In verse 13, I know your works and that they were loyal to the faith, that they had the courage even to death. They, they were willing to be martyred for the sake of Christ. But in verse 14, I have a few things against you. Isn't that remarkable that we can always grow in Christ. There's a few things that we can improve in our life. You have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, again, I, I want to emphasize the fact here that, that he's saying that as a church, they have something to do. And even though there's a few that are, that are doing this they're, they're, they're going after the doctrine of Balaam. He said it's impacting what you can do as a church. 
I think that's important for all of us to understand and why membership is so important, that we are connected one to another, that we are on the same page one to another. We are in unity one to another because we are called to do something collectively. And he says a few things against you. You have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. That doctrine matters. Direction matters. How you view things matters. It impacts the ultimate effectiveness of the church. And so verse number 17, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So he challenges their false doctrine. He challenges them in that way. It wasn't everybody, but he said it's still, if it's in the church, it's affecting the church. Revelation uh, 2.18, Thyatira, the church of Thyatira, he said, these things says the Son of God, and he talks about the eyes, the flame of fire, and the, the feet like fine brass, and you see that in the prologue, and he says, I know your works, verse 19, I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, your patience, all these things, I know what is happening, but he said again, here, there's, there's something that's going on, nevertheless, a, I have a few things against you, because, of, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to uh, commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. It wasn't everybody doing it, but it was people doing it that ultimately affected the effectiveness of the church, and, and God calls it out. And so we see that, that they were allowing worldliness to infect the church, and he says, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power, verse 26, to him I will give power over the nations, and uh, it, it goes on. All right, the church in Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1, and he talks about the seven spirits of God. I mentioned to you uh, last week, Isaiah 11, the seven spirits of God are found in Isaiah chapter 11. In verse uh, number one of Revelation chapter three, he said, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. There were some who were pure, there were some who were living, but he said, you have allowed a spiritual uh, deterioration of your life. You, you, you've allowed yourself to walk back from what you were doing and, and your, your works need, uh, your, your garments are defiled in a way. And, and so in verse number five, he says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So the church of Sardis is uh, mentioned there. The church in Philadelphia. And again, he talks, he introduces himself as that he is who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, shuts and no one opens. Verse 8, I know your works. And what were their works? They kept God's word. They, they were willing to do what was necessary. They kept his word, verse number eight, and have not denied my name. They were working for God. But he said there uh, uh, were some who were 
really creating weakness in them, who say they're Jews, but they are not, and it's creating this weakness in the church. And so in verse number 12, he said, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He's speaking to the strength that I'm going to give you strength, he who overcomes. And so the church of Philadelphia, he really presses them that I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I'll write on him my new name. You see that language of New Jerusalem later on in the book of Revelation, but it's a very powerful imagery about the church. All right, then the church of Laodicea, and he says, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold, I could wish you were hot or cold, so because you are lukewarm, uh, lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And it's a very startling uh, uh, passage to read about how they are just kind of coasting through and just kind of thinking, well, we're wealthy, and see, God's blessing us, and see, we've got this, but God was telling them, no, you're, you're, you're comfortable, but you're not accomplishing my work, and what a challenge that is for us as believers, and he says in verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, in verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit it says to the churches. And so he challenges their apathy in this particular uh, section of the letter. And so you see these seven churches. He writes to these seven churches. And what I want you to understand about these seven churches, again, you can dive deep into these. There's a lot of things you can understand But all of the churches were going through some things. All of the churches were facing pressure. They were facing challenges, which makes me feel good, right? If these seven churches were struggling this close to the uh, leadership of the apostles, it's okay. We're, We're doing our best. We're trying our best. But what I find important about these communications, I alluded to it, is that the church is viewed as a collection of people. And so it's not an indictment about individuals. It's an indictment. It's it's demonstrating the weakness of the church, even though it might be a few people. It's illustrating the weakness of the church as a whole. And he said, I know your works. He's not talking about individually, I know your works. He's talking collectively. I know what this church produces. And that's the challenge that I feel for the Calvary Church, that yes, God is viewing us individually. We receive God's mercy. But I believe God is watching us collectively. What is the Calvary Church doing collectively? What is our strength? As a church, not what is your strength as an individual, but what is our strength as a church? And the second thing is, what is our weakness as a church? I don't want to know what it is, but I I know it exists. And so I'm going to give you about five minutes, all right? So Teresa's going to pass you out a piece of paper, and uh, 
We're going to evaluate the Calvary Church. You've always wanted to do this. You've always wanted to complain about things and write your grievances. Well, here it is. This is your chance to write your grievances about the Calvary Church. When you, I don't want you to think of yourself individually. I want you to think about what the Calvary Church does collectively, both what we do in this building collectively, how we interact with people in this building, how you think we interact with our, our community, how you think we interact outside of this building. I want you to write down what you think the strengths of the Calvary Church are collectively and what you think the weaknesses. If God were to pen a letter about the Calvary Church, what would he say about our strengths? What would be the works? I know your works. What are our works? And what would he say, but I have a few things against you? All right? Is, is this too uh, bold? Probably, I admit. Thankfully, no one else is going to read these. I'm not going to send these out to everybody. I'm going to read these. All right? Maybe, maybe we'll, we'll see. We'll see. But I want you to take five minutes and only five minutes because we do have a, a little ways to go. Yeah, you, if you want to put your name, that, that would be great. <laughs> that would be fantastic. No, don't put your name on it. I won't sleep tonight, but just put it just right.
more minute to do that. And then this next segment, you'll be able to continue to write. So if you want to, we'll collect these at the end. Let you keep writing here, but the next segment of what we're going to do, I've, I've uh, used the Bible Project as uh, a resource at different times um, and have personally enjoyed uh, the, the way that the Bible Project is produced. The Bible Project is a video series. It's really an organization that you can, you can look up these videos on YouTube, but they, they basically take uh, books of the Bible. They've taken all the books of the Bible and they've animated it in a way that kind of gives you an overview of it. It's really great and well produced. And I felt like since this series is kind of understanding framework and and uh, just kind of a short overview of the book of Revelation, I thought that this would be a great way for you to kind of capture the book of Revelation uh, in an animated way and an overview way. And of course, there may be things that you see differently or I see differently in how he outlines it. But for the most part, I think it's a solid way to view the book of Revelation. And uh, I think it's well-grounded and hopefully uh, it'll be meaningful to you. If you have your Bible, you may want to get it out. And as he's pointing out different aspects of the book of Revelation, you may want to write it down. He's going to give you a lot of Old Testament references and uh, hopefully it'll be enjoyable to you. So it'll be uh, a somewhat lengthy video, but I think that uh, it's actually two videos put together, but I think you'll, you'll gain a lot out of it. The Book of the Revelation of Jesus. The author of this book, which is not called Revelations, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John, which could refer to the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel and the letters of John, or it could be a different John, a messianic Jewish prophet who traveled about and taught in the early church. Whichever John it was, he makes clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book he has written. He calls it, first of all, a revelation or apocalypse. The Greek word is apokalypsis, and it refers to a type of literature very familiar to John's readers from the Hebrew scriptures and from other popular Jewish texts. Apocalypses recounted a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. And John says this apocalypse is a prophecy, which means it's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people, usually to warn or comfort them in a time of crisis. By calling this book a prophecy, John's saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. And this apocalyptic prophecy was sent to real people that John knew. The book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Now, seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. And John has woven sevens into every single part of this book. Now, with this opening, John has given us clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. 
Jewish apocalypse is communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects his readers to go discover what the symbols mean by looking up the text he's alluding to. Also, the fact that it's a letter means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches. And so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. Which brings us into the book's first section, Jesus' message to the seven churches. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he saw a vision of the risen Jesus, exalted as king of the world. And he was standing among seven burning lights. And John's told this is a symbol of the seven churches in Asia Minor that's been adapted from the book of the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus starts addressing the specific problems that face each church. Some were apathetic due to wealth and affluence. Others were morally compromised. Their people were still eating ritual meals and sleeping around in pagan temples. But others among the churches remained faithful to Jesus, and they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution. And Jesus warns that things are going to get worse. A tribulation is upon the churches that will force them to choose between compromise or faithfulness. By John's day, the murder of Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero was passed, and the persecution of Christians by Emperor Domitian was likely underway. And so the temptation was to deny Jesus, either to avoid persecution or simply to join in the spirit of the Roman age. And Jesus calls them to faithfulness so that they can overcome or literally conquer. And Jesus promises a reward for everyone in these churches who does conquer. Each reward is drawn directly from the book's final vision about the marriage of heaven and earth. And so this opening section, it sets up the main plot tension that will drive the storyline in this book. Will Jesus' people endure? Will they inherit the new world that God has in store? And why is faithfulness to Jesus described as conquering? The rest of the book is John's answer. After this, John has a vision of God's heavenly throne room, and he describes it with imagery drawn from many Old Testament prophets. Surrounding God are creatures and elders that represent all creation and human nations, and they're giving honor and allegiance to the one true creator God who is holy, holy, holy. In God's hand is a scroll that's closed up with seven wax seals. It symbolizes the message of the Old Testament prophets and the sealed scroll of Daniel's visions. These are all about how God's kingdom will come here fully on earth as in heaven. But it turns out no one is able to open the scroll until John hears of someone who can. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He can open it. These are classic Old Testament descriptions of the messianic king who would bring God's kingdom through military conquest. Now, that's what John hears. But then what he turns and sees is not an aggressive lion king, but a sacrificed bloody lamb who's alive, standing there, and ready to open the scroll. Now, this symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb, this is crucially important for understanding the book. John's saying that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated through the crucifixion crucified Messiah. Jesus overcame his enemies by dying for them as the true Passover lamb so that they could be redeemed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat. It was his enthronement. It was the way he conquered evil. And so this vision concludes with the lamb alongside the one sitting on the throne, and together they are worshipped as the one true creator and redeemer, and the slain lamb begins to open the scroll. It's a symbol of his divine authority to guide history to its conclusion. 
Which brings us to the next section of the book, the three cycles of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And each cycle depicts God's kingdom and justice coming here on earth as in heaven. Now, some people think that the three sets of seven divine judgments represent a literal linear sequence of events that either happened in the past or could be happening now or are yet to happen in the future when Jesus returns. But notice how John has woven all the sevens together. So the final seven bowls come out of the seventh trumpet and the seventh seal. And the seven trumpets emerge from the seventh seal. They're like nesting dolls. Each seventh contains the next seven. Also notice how each of the series of seven culminates in the final judgment and they have matching conclusions. So it's more likely that John is using each set of seven to depict the same period of time between Jesus's resurrection and future return from three different perspectives. So the slain lamb begins to open the scroll's first four seals. And John sees four horsemen. It's an image from the book of Zechariah chapter 1. And they symbolize times of war, conquest, famine, and death. In other words, a tragically average day in human history. Then the fifth seal depicts the murdered Christian martyrs before God's heavenly throne. And the cry of their innocent blood rises up before God like smoke from the altar of incense. And they're told to rest because more Christians are yet to die. We're not told why, but we are told that it won't last forever. The sixth seal is God's ultimate response to their cry. He brings the great day of the Lord that was described in Isaiah and Joel. And the people of the earth cry out, who is able to stand? And then all of a sudden, John pauses the action with an intermission to answer that question. John sees an angel with a signet ring coming to place a mark of protection on God's servants who are enduring all this hardship. And he hears the number of those who are sealed, 144,000. It's a military census, like the one in the book of Numbers, chapter 1. There are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, pay attention. The number of this army is what John heard, just like he heard about the conquering lion of Judah. But in both cases, what he then turned and saw was the surprising fulfillment of those military images in Jesus, the slain lamb. So when he sees this messianic army of God's kingdom, it's made up of people from all nations, fulfilling God's ancient promise to Abraham. It's this multi-ethnic army of the lamb who can stand before God because they've been redeemed by the lamb's blood. And now they are called to conquer, not by killing their enemies, but by suffering and bearing witness just like the lamb. After this, the seventh and final seal is broken. But before the scroll is opened, the seven warning trumpets emerge and fire is taken from the incense altar. It symbolizes the cry of the martyrs and it's cast onto the earth, bringing the day of the Lord to its completion. Now, with the seven trumpets, John backs up and he retells the story again, this time with images from the Exodus story. So the first five trumpet blasts replay the plague sent upon Egypt, and then the sixth trumpet releases the four horsemen that came from the first four seals. But then John tells us that despite all these plagues, the nations did not repent, just like Pharaoh didn't in the Exodus story. So it seems that God's judgment alone will not bring people to humble repentance before him. Then John pauses the action again with another intermission. An angel brings the unsealed scroll that was opened by the lamb. And just like Ezekiel, John is told to eat the scroll and then proclaim its message to the nations. Finally, the lamb scroll is open and now we will discover how God's kingdom will come here on earth. The scroll's content is spelled out in two symbolic visions. First, John sees God's temple and the martyrs by the altar, and he's told to measure and set them apart. It's an image of protection taken from Zechariah chapter 2. 
But then the outer courts in the city are excluded and they get trampled down by the nations. Now, some think that this refers literally to a destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the past or will happen in the future. But more likely, John's following the tradition of Jesus and the apostles who all used the new temple as a symbol for God's new covenant people. In that case, this is an image about how Jesus' followers may suffer persecution by the nations, but this external defeat cannot take away their victory through the Lamb. This idea gets expanded in the scroll's second vision. God appoints two witnesses as prophetic representatives to the nations. And once again, some people think this refers literally to two prophets who will appear one day in the future. But John calls them lampstands, which is one of his clear symbols for the churches. So this vision is more likely about the prophetic role of Jesus' followers, who are to take up the mantle of Moses and Elijah and call idolatrous nations and rulers to turn back to the one true God. But then, all of a sudden, a horrible beast appears. Let the reader remember Daniel chapter 7. And the beast conquers the witnesses and kills them. But then, God brings them back to life and vindicates the witnesses before their persecutors. And the end result is that many among the nations finally do repent and give glory to the Creator God in the day of the Lord. Now, stop. Think about the story so far. God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets did not generate repentance among the nations, just like the Exodus plagues only hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the lamb, he conquered his enemies by loving them, dying for them. And now the message of the lamb's scroll reveals the mission of his army, the church. God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of the Lamb, not killing their enemies, but dying for them. It is God's mercy shown through Jesus' followers that will bring the nations to repentance. And this surprising claim is the message of the open scroll that John has placed at the exact center of the entire book. After this, the last trumpet sounds and the nations are shaken as God's kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven. So now we know how the church will bear witness to the nations and inherit the new creation, but who was that terrible beast that waged war on God's people? And how will the whole story turn out? John will tell us in the second half of the book of the Revelation. The Revelation of Jesus given to John the prophet. In the first video, we explored how John composed this apocalyptic prophecy as a circular letter to seven churches in Asia Minor to challenge and comfort these Christians who were suffering from apathy and persecution under the Roman Empire. We also encountered John's main symbol for Jesus, the slain lamb, who conquered his enemies by dying for them. He is the one who opens up the scroll containing God's purposes to bring his kingdom on earth as in heaven. The scroll's opening brought warning judgments like the plagues of Egypt, and like Pharaoh, the nations do not repent. And then John introduced the multi-ethnic army of the Lamb, and the open scroll revealed their strange mission. It's to follow the Lamb by bearing witness to God's justice and mercy before the beastly nations, even if it kills them. And they will conquer the beast by laying down their lives just like the Lamb, and this will move the nations to repentance. In the remainder of the book, John will fill out his portrayal of this beast and his war on God's people and how the whole story ends. After the seven trumpets, John stops the drumbeat of sevens with a series of visions that he calls signs. The word literally means symbols, and these chapters are full of them. These visions explore the message of the open scroll in greater depth. The first one reveals the cosmic spiritual battle that lay behind the suffering of the seven churches under Roman persecution. It's a manifestation of that ancient conflict that began in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent 
who represents the source of all evil, is depicted here as a dragon. It attacks a woman and her seed. They represent the Messiah and his people. Then the Messiah defeats the dragon through his death and resurrection, and it's cast to earth. There the dragon inspires hatred and persecution of the Messiah's people. But they will conquer the dragon by resisting his influence, even if it kills them. John's trying to show the churches that neither Rome nor any other nation or human is the real enemy. There are dark spiritual powers at work, and Jesus' followers will announce Jesus' victory by remaining faithful and loving their enemies just like the slain lamb. John's next vision retells the story of the same conflict, but this time in the earthly symbolism of Daniel's animal visions. John sees two beasts empowered by the dragon. One of them represents national military power that conquers through violence. The other beast symbolizes the economic propaganda machine that exalts this power as divine. And these beasts demand full allegiance from the nations, and that's symbolized by taking the mark of the beast and his number, 666, on the forehead or hand. Now, this is an infamous image, and you won't discover its meaning by reading news headlines. John's making a clear Hebrew Old Testament reference here. First of all, this mark is the anti-Shema. The writing on the forehead and hand, it's a clear reference to the Shema, an ancient Jewish prayer of allegiance to God that's found in the book of Deuteronomy. This prayer also was written on the forehead and hand as a symbol of devoting all your thoughts and actions to the one true God. But now the rebellious nations demand their own allegiance and they force everyone to decide who they will follow. Then there's the number of the beast, which has fascinated readers for thousands of years. But this was not a mystery to John. He spoke Hebrew and Greek. And Hebrew letters were also numbers. If you spell the Greek words Nero Caesar and the word beast in Hebrew, each one amounts to 666. Now, John isn't saying that Nero was the only fulfillment of this vision. Nero's just a recent example of the ancient pattern set out by Daniel, that the nations become beasts when they exalt their own power and economic security as a false god and then demand total allegiance. So Babylon was the beast in Daniel's day, but that was followed by Persia, followed by Greece, and now Rome in John's day. And so it goes for any later nation that acts in the same way. Standing opposed to the beastly nations and the dragon is another king. It's the slain lamb. He's with his army who have given their lives to follow him. And from the new Jerusalem, their song of victory goes out to the nations in what John calls the eternal gospel. And they call everyone to repent and to worship God and to come out of Babylon that will fall. Its days are numbered. Then John sees a vision of final judgment. It's symbolized by two harvests. One is a good harvest of grain as King Jesus comes to gather up his faithful people to himself. The other is a harvest of wine grapes. It represents humanity's intoxication with evil. They're taken to the wine press and trampled. Now, throughout all these sign visions, John is placing a stark choice before the seven churches. Will they resist the lure of Babylon and follow the lamb? Or will they follow the beast and suffer its defeat. Now that the choice is clear, John replays a final cycle of seven divine judgments, symbolized as pouring out seven bowls. Now we know from the Lamb's scroll and from the sign visions that many among the nations do repent. But as the Exodus plagues are repeated and poured out through the bowls, there are many people who do not repent. They resist and curse God just like Pharaoh.
And so it all leads up to the sixth bowl. As the dragon and the beasts, they gather the nations together to make war against God's people in a place called Armageddon. This refers to a plain in northern Israel where many battles were fought by Israel against invading nations. And some people think that this sixth bowl refers to an actual future battle. Other people think that it's a metaphor for God's final justice on evil. Either way, John's clearly taken images from the book of Ezekiel about God's battle with Gog. Gog was Ezekiel's symbol of the rebellious nations gathered before God to face his justice. And that's what comes in the seventh bowl. It's the fourth and final depiction of the day of the Lord when evil is defeated among the nations once and for all. Now, John has fully unpacked the message of the Lamb's unsealed scroll. And now he goes back to expand on three key themes that he's introduced earlier. The fall of Babylon, the final battle to defeat evil, and the arrival of the new Jerusalem. And each one of these explores the final coming of God's kingdom from a different angle. So first, the fall of Babylon. An angel shows John a stunning woman who's dressed like a queen, but she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs and of all innocent people. She's riding the dragon beast from the sign visions. It's a symbol of the rebellious nations. And she's called Babylon the prostitute. Now, the detailed symbols of this vision, they would be very clear to John's first readers. He's personifying the military and economic power of the Roman Empire, but he's also doing more. In this vision, John has blended together words and images from every single Old Testament passage about the downfall of ancient Babylon, Tyre, and Edom. John showing how Rome is simply the newest version of the Old Testament archetype of humanity in rebellion against God. They come together and form nations that exalt their own economic and military security into a false God. This isn't something limited to the past or the future. It's a portrait of the human condition throughout history. And Babylon's will come and go leading up to the day when Jesus returns to replace Babylon with his kingdom. But how will Jesus' kingdom come? Up to this point, the day of the Lord has been depicted as a day of fire or earthquake or harvest. And now it's depicted as a final battle and it's told twice. It results in the vindication of the martyrs. Now John takes us back to the sixth bowl where the nations were gathered together to oppose God. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears. He's the great hero. He's the word of God riding on a white horse and he's ready to conquer the world's evil. But pay attention. He's covered with blood before the battle even begins, and that's because it's his own. And his only weapon is the sword of his mouth. It's an image adapted from Isaiah. John's telling us that Armageddon will not be a bloodbath. Rather, the same Jesus who shed his own blood for his enemies now comes proclaiming justice. He will hold accountable those who refuse to repent of the ways that they participate in the ruin of God's good world. And the destructive hellfire that they've unleashed in God's world justly becomes their own God-appointed destiny. After this, John sees a vision of Jesus' followers who have been murdered by Babylon, and they're brought back to life, and they reign with the Messiah for 1,000 years. Then after this, the dragon who inspired humanity's rebellion against God rallies the nations of the world together to rebel against God's kingdom. But before God's throne of justice, they all face the consequences of eternal defeat. And so the forces of spiritual evil and everyone who doesn't want to participate in God's kingdom are destroyed. They're given what they want to 
exist by themselves and for themselves. And so the dragon and Babylon and all who choose them are eternally quarantined, never again able to corrupt God's new creation. Now, there's a lot of debate about the relationship of the 1,000 years to these two battles. There are some who think it refers to a literal chronological sequence. Jesus' return, followed by a thousand-year kingdom on earth called the millennium, followed by God's final judgment. Other people think that the thousand years are a symbol of Jesus' and the martyrs' present victory over spiritual evil, and that the two battles depict Jesus' future return from two different angles. Whichever view you take, the main point is clear. When Jesus returns as king, he will deal with evil forever, and he'll vindicate those who have been faithful to him. The book concludes with a final vision of the marriage of heaven and earth. An angel shows John a stunning bride that symbolizes the new creation that has come forever to join God and his covenant people. God announces that he's come to live with humanity forever and that he's making all things new. John's vision here is a kaleidoscope of Old Testament promises. This place is a new heavens and earth, a restored creation that's healed of the pain and evil of human history. It's also a new garden of Eden, the paradise of eternal life with God. But it's not simply a return back to the garden. It's a step forward into a new Jerusalem, a great city where human cultures and all their diversity work together in peace and harmony before God. And in the most surprising twist of all, there's no temple building in the new creation because the presence of God and the Lamb that were once limited to the temple now permeate every square inch of the new world. And there's a new humanity there fulfilling the calling placed on them all the way back on page one of the Bible to rule as God's image, to partner together with God in taking this creation into new and uncharted territory. And so ends John's apocalypse and the epic storyline of the whole Bible. John did not write this book as a secret code for you to decipher the timetable of Jesus' return. It's a symbolic vision that brought hope and challenge to the seven first century churches and every generation of Christians since. It reveals history's pattern and God's promise that every human kingdom eventually becomes Babylon and must be resisted in the power of the slain lamb. But there's a promise that Jesus, who loved and died for this world, will not let Babylon go unchecked. He will return one day to remove evil from his good world and make all things new. And that is a promise that should motivate faithfulness in every generation of God's people until the king returns. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. Isn't that awesome? Why don't you stand tonight? And again, the final few verses of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And what we read in the book of Revelation is just that promise that no matter what the world brings, no matter what the world becomes, that Christ prevails. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world prevails, and we want him to return as quickly as he will. And the final verse, I love the final verse of Revelation. John said, "The grace of the Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen." What we need is God's grace for these times. And I thank God for uh, just what this book represents to us uh, and, and how it motivates us. Hopefully it motivates us to 
be willing to surrender our hearts to Jesus Christ completely. The story of those seven churches and the, the challenge to be who God's called us to be as the church, the Calvary Church here in Cincinnati and Springdale. God wants us to collectively have an impact in this community, in this world. And I pray that we would be up for the challenge, that we would be everything that God calls us to be. So I want to pray for us in closing. I thank you for being here. Thank you for giving me a little extra time tonight. Lord, we thank you, God, for the hope that we find in your word. God, even in the book of Revelation where maybe it's challenging, God, to understand what is being said and how it it impacts us and, and what it means in the, the past and the present and the future. Lord, I thank you, God, that we can look at it and know ultimately that you are the victor, that you are a victorious Savior, that you are the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, that you sit on the throne. And Lord, you ultimately want to reveal yourself to us, that you are not hidden from us. You want to reveal yourself to us, both now and in the future, Lord, you're reconciling people unto yourself, and I pray that we would surrender ourselves to you. God, if individually we have not surrendered ourselves to you, I pray that we would do that. We would find your mercy and grace that is for everyone. And Lord, collectively as the Calvary Church, I pray that we would be the church that you've called us to be. I pray that you would know our works, know who we are, know what we're doing, God, in our community and in our our world, and ultimately, Lord, help us to overcome collectively. God, whatever we need to change, whatever we need to do to be everything you're calling us to be, I pray that we would do it, God, and surrender our hope and our lives to you. We thank you, God, for this great church. Bring us back on Sunday for your, for your glory to be measured in this place. We thank you in the name of Jesus, we pray. Everyone said amen. Amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.